I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. Part of the human condition is to believe in something other than ourselves, something larger than life. But does that mean accepting the existence of God or something divine? Life does not have to have a meaning for me to find life meaningful. It doesn't have to have a cosmological meaning, a religious, a philosophical meaning for me to find meaning in my own personal life. And later, we'll hear what's contributing to the increase in secularism and non-believers. There has historically been this package. You get married, and then you go to church or temple, then you have kids, then you send them to Sunday school. And so stable families were an important part of congregations. And then that meant that, that and in, any instability introduced to this model of the 1950s style nuclear family would destabilize families' relationships with the church. Living a meaningful life absent of religious beliefs, all ahead on Life Examined. Almost all of us yearn to feel connected to something larger than life. For many, that's a belief in God and religion. But those numbers are on the decline. According to a 2019 Pew Research survey, a quarter of the U.S. population today are choosing to opt out of religion altogether. So it makes sense there's been an increase in the number of atheists, those who reject the existence of any form of supernatural deity. But what does it mean to be an atheist in today's America? Philosopher and self-described atheist Todd May explains that atheism has no fixed doctrine and means different things to different people. He teaches ethics, morality, and political philosophy at Clemson University, and his book, Death, the Art of Living, describes how not believing in God or an afterlife actually provides greater meaning to his life. Well, Todd May, welcome to Life Examined. Oh, Jonathan, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. I, I want to jump into this topic of atheism and, and and kind of explore how you understand that term and what it means, because there's this incredible history. I know that um, one atheist does not equal the way that another person thinks of atheism. So can you talk about what it means to you? Yeah, and, and you're right, Jonathan. It's, atheism is going to be different for different people. Uh, and for me, it just became... So I tried to understand the world in religious terms. Uh, when I was in college, I took courses in religion, and I couldn't find the explanations compelling. Mm. Uh, and so it, for me, atheism was more or less a place I drifted to. Uh, and I drifted to it not as a position that I feel like, okay, here's something I need to defend against all comers. But it seemed to me that the kinds of ways of thinking about the world and explaining the world to myself, none of them involved a supernatural deity. And so in that sense, my atheism is just an atheism that, that says, I, I don't see any compelling reason to believe that there's a supernatural deity and I can explain the world to myself without it. And the parts that I can't explain to myself, they are just, um, I, I don't think that it, a supernatural deity is going to help. Uh, there are people who are more, and I, I think I can use the term more rabid mm. uh, in their atheism, that they, they feel that they need to dismiss folks who are believers. I don't feel any need to do that. I mean, I, I, I suppose I'm committed to the idea that people who use supernatural explanations are mistaken, but that doesn't seem to me a fairly deep fact about them. Yeah. It's interesting that you were looking for theism or some type of, of, of God or the presence of God to understand life. And, and I wonder where, where you came from as a child or your family. Did you grow up in a particularly religious household? 
I, I didn't actually. Um, my father described himself as an agnostic. Uh, and uh, in that sense, he was probably agnostic about not simply supernatural deities, but most of what went on in his life. My mother is was more, uh, I think she described herself as a broadly a deist. Her background is Jewish. His background was Protestant. So I didn't grow up with anything particularly religious. I did grow up in New York City, uh, and my peer group was Jewish. Uh, but in that sense, I was sort of left to my own devices in terms of sorting this stuff out. Uh, and I wanted to think about God from, from different perspectives. And that, at that point, the different perspectives were, was, were Christianity and Judaism. Uh, the, the, at least those was what I was exposed to. If I were growing up now, I think I would be exposed to Islam uh, more than I was. Uh, in high school, I had a teacher who was a Taoist uh, and taught me some Taoism and some Buddhism. But those aren't necessarily religious philosophies. Mm. Uh, they don't necessarily involve the supernatural deity. So I began to, I was exposed to all these different things and just began to think about, well, what seemed, what seems right to me? And I came across existentialism and I came across Sartre and his atheist existentialism. And that, that gripped me as right in a way that nothing else had gripped me before. Uh, and I had before that been studying the religious philosophy. Yeah. So in sort of turning away from the religious philosophy, getting gripped by Sard a little bit, uh, I just found myself going down a path that I've never actually gone back on. Right. And here you're talking about Jean-Paul Sartre. This is the 20th century French philosopher, really important in, in existential philosophy. Um, what did he write that was so important to you? What, what stuck out in his work? Sartre, he didn't prove that God didn't exist. And, I, and I'm glad he didn't prove God didn't exist, or at least didn't try, because you, you can't really do that. Mm. But he just said, look, if we start from the thesis that God doesn't exist and we have no compelling reason to believe in God, then here we are. We find ourselves thrown into this world, and we have to make up somehow the meaning that our lives will have. And that seemed both right and frightening to me. Because if we're making up the meaning that we have and we don't have something like a God to rely on, Jonathan, then that gives us, on the one hand, a whole lot of responsibility, but on the other hand, nothing to lean on with that responsibility. It, uh, it, we, we could, when I teach this stuff, students will often describe saying, look, I feel really at sea here uh, because I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to have this responsibility for making up the meaning of my life, and I don't have anything to rely on with it. And for a long time, that seemed right to me. Uh, I've since changed my view a bit. I think there's more to lean on than Sartre thought. But I haven't changed the view that there isn't some cosmic guarantee for our, the meaning of our lives. Right. Does, does, does that make sense? I, I, it I, does. I hope okay. It makes complete sense, and I think you've hit on, I think, what what is so um, liberating but also so deeply frightening about the idea of turning away from a traditional religion or the idea that there's some supernatural deity, which, which gives you a sense of purpose, which gives you a sense of morality, and I, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about then what it means 
to then craft a sense of meaning for your own life because that's a big task. Yes. And, 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 and I think, Jonathan, that everybody does that, including folks who are religious. And let me explain why I think that. If we, a person believes in God, then they, uh, and most people believe that God is good, that, that, that God is not an evil figure. But if God is good, that means that they themselves have standards of goodness that they believe God meets. And so in that sense, people, even believers, are in charge of their own morality, that they have the standards that they think God meets. And so I, I think this is a situation that I'm in, and in that sense, is not that far from the situation that religious believers are in. But once we're in that spot, Jonathan, what I used to think, and this was the Sartrean thought, that, well, we just make it up. But in fact, I don't think that that's right. Now, I think that we're all involved in societies, and those societies help give us our moral bearings, help give us a sense of what's meaningful. And we can criticize those uh, and think about those, but we don't do it in a vacuum. So my relationship to what might be meaningful and my relationship to morality is something that happens in dialogue with the social standards I find myself within. Mm. It's not something that I, I just go back privately and make up. And Sartre sometimes left that impression that you're an individual divorced from your social conditions and you decide what it is that is going to be meaningful and what it is that's going to be right. And I want to say, no, it's, it's, it, it, we're not isolated units here. We're in conversation with our society and in conversation with those norms in trying to find what's meaningful for us and what the right thing is to do. I want to get your thoughts on, on something related to this, which is, you know, we had somebody in here talking about uh, big questions of nature and nurture and, what, you know, what do we gain from our, our genetics that have been handed down. And one thing that really jumped out at me is that it seems that certain people have a proclivity towards religiosity, that there is a certain aspect of being human that is we want to believe in something. It could be something greater than ourselves. Do you think that's kind of an important point in this, that there's a part of the human condition that wants to believe in something greater? Oh, this, is a, this is a deep and important question, Jonathan. What I'm going to do and I'm going to announce it in advance, is I'm going to do a little fancy footwork that's ducking the question. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you, you, you've asked a philosopher something about the es es essential character of human nature. And this, and, and this leads to puzzles. It's surely a deep fact about us that we want to feel connected to something larger. Almost all of us want to be connected to something larger. But I don't think that something larger needs to be religious. We can be connected in the sense that we feel connected to humanity or we feel connected to the natural world. Or traditional Buddhists feel connected to one another in a universe that's one, but there's no deity in that universe. Mm. So I think there are different ways of wanting connection with something outside of us. Now, the, here's the part I'm going to duck. 
Is that something that is part of human nature or has that been woven into our history in such a way that it just seems natural to all of us? And Jonathan, I have, I, I have no idea what to say about that. Mm. It's, it's deep. Is it genetic or is it deep historical? Couldn't tell you. But I, I love that idea, though, that perhaps the believing in something larger than ourselves doesn't have to be a god. And, and this is something I hear a lot among my millennial cohort, which is that my, my, my spirituality, per se, is nature, or it's being in the outdoors. What does it mean for an atheist to be spiritual? Can an atheist be spiritual? What do, what do you think about that? Well, I... I, I... On the one hand, I think an atheist can be spiritual in the sense of feeling a connection mm. to something, feeling a resonance with something, where I think most atheists are going to draw the line is in the account of what that something is that they feel. So if they say, I'm feeling a connection to nature, and that's because there's this cosmic thing out there that connects me to nature then I think most atheists are going to say, I'm not going there. So I think there can be a spirituality. There doesn't seem any reason not to think there can be a spirituality. But the spirituality is going to be emotional without necessarily a set of cosmic commitments as to what, uh, as to what undergirds or what that, that sense of connection is based on. But can it simply be... Even if you don't believe in God, can your, can your sense of spirituality just be one of mystery? I mean, does that work as well? Because I think for some people, maybe that's what it is as well. There is this larger connection. Not sure exactly what it is, but there's something mysterious about it. Does that work for you? I think, yeah, I think that would be fine. Uh, but we got to be careful about this because, I mean, you know, my wife was brought up Catholic, mm. and she would raise questions about, you know, why is there evil uh and one of the there's the human evil another catholic theologians say because humans have free will and they have to have free will because that's a better world but that doesn't explain why there's natural evil why are there volcanoes and tidal waves and and, and innocent you know young kids who die of disease and the answer that she got was well it's mystery hmm. and when one uses a mystery in that sense one saying there's a God that's doing things. We just happen not to understand all of the reasoning behind it. Uh, that's not the kind of mystery I think that an atheist is going to uh, be able to cotton on to. Right. But if we say that there are a sense of connections that we have to the world and we can't explain all those connections, I don't think, I think that's fine. I and mean, one thing an atheist should be in many cases is humble about what they know and what they don't. Uh, so that if something arises and I can't, I can't explain it, but I'm sensing it, I think a, a, an atheist that's worth his or her salt is going to say, yeah, I, I feel it, uh, but I can't explain it. Uh, I'm not going to jump to the thesis of something supernatural or cosmic that explains it, uh, but I'm just going to, I'm going to sit with this. Mm. Well, I, the other major question I have, and it ties into what you're saying, is is how we then begin to make sense of death. Because this is, to me, the most deeply unsettling notion, which is that when we die, if we're an atheist, we just think of ourselves as kind of 
the extinguishing of consciousness, perhaps no soul that transmigrates. We just, we, we go into the void, into the nothingness. And that's, that's, very, that's very unsettling, as I said. Um, how have you been able to reckon with uh, death and being an atheist? Jonathan, I taught a course on death some years back. Uh, I taught it once. Uh, it's the best course I've ever taught, hands mm. down. I will never teach it again. <laughs> it was too frightening for me. It was too difficult for me to go through. And I was lucky in that the students that I was with I, were all students I'd had before. And we went on this journey that was painful for all of us. Uh, and I couldn't trust that, that I would have a group to do that again. So you're right. It's, it's very difficult to confront. Uh, but on the other hand, think, Jonathan, of what immortality would be like. Right? If our lives just went on forever, I think they'd become shapeless and boring. The image I sometimes use is not my image, it's an old image. Think of a bird that comes by a desert the size of the Sahara and picks up a grain of sand and then flies off. And 10,000 years later, comes back, picks up another grain of sand, flies off. In the time it would take to empty the Sahara Desert, not an instant of your immortality will have, will have gone by. Mm. It's, I think we can agree, immortality lasts a long time. And I think in that sense, we need death to help give our lives a sense of urgency and shape. If we were never to die, the things that we do wouldn't be, I think, as meaningful to us. So death on the one hand is frightening, and yet on the other hand, right, death is something that I think we need in order for our lives to have the kind of meaning and urgency that they do have. I completely agree with how it shapes our life. And yet, why is it still so hard to sit with that notion of becoming nothing? It's, that, that's, the, that's the part that still gets me. I mean, does that frighten you as well? Oh, yeah. No, it, it, it surely frightens me. To say that we need death to give our lives meaning is not to say, hey, death is great. It, the, the, the weird paradox is that on the one hand, we do need death to give our lives meaning. Yet on the other hand, death ends that very thing that is meaningful for right. us. So it's, it, that, I would say that's the tension that we have to live. And as human beings who th can think about and conceive our death, I think this is part, if we're talking about the human condition, I think this is part of the human condition. I am curious to ask you about how how you would approach or suggest raising children. Um, should they be exposed to religious or spiritual traditions? Um, should w would you suggest <laughs> an atheist upbringing? I mean, what what is your your schooling as a philosopher teach you about this? Yeah, I, I well, I, I think it's important that kids do get exposed to the various traditions out of which our culture is woven. Uh, and those deeply involved religious traditions. People will raise their kids with a belief or without a belief. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't have a choice there. You're sort of forced to go one way or the other. But I think exposing kids to different traditions, which we did with our kids, uh, letting them see them and then decide for themselves, knowing that 
the decisions that we have made are not necessarily the decisions that they will make. And so in that sense, although in a given household, there can only be one or a limited number of themes, religious or non-religious, I think it's everybody's responsibility to say, look, the tradition out of which we are thinking about our lives is not the only tradition that there is. There are other traditions as well, and it's worth looking at those. This is such a fascinating conversation. Well, Professor Todd Maya Clemson, thank you for this and uh, for all these thought-provoking ideas today. I, I really appreciate your time. Well, 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 thanks, John, for having me and, and, and for focusing on issues that are deeply important to our lives, even as we get sometimes caught up in what the next meal, right, the next job promotion, things like that. I mean, I think what you're doing here is really important. Coming up on Life Examines, why are so many Americans turning away from God and traditional religions? That's after this short break. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Professor Todd May's perspective, that while he denies the existence of a god or a deity in the universe, he acknowledges that we all long to connect with something larger than ourselves, be that humanity, nature, or other human beings. Our next guest explains how, as an atheist, she finds meaning in her life through finding wonder and pursuing the impossible, regardless of the destination. Diana Nyad is a sports commentator, author, and you might know her for another reason— she was the first woman to swim from Cuba to Florida unaided at the age of 64. Well, Diana Nyad, welcome to Life Examined. My pleasure, Jonathan. I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Stimulating conversation, right? Uh, certainly stimulating. And I know that you are so often um, asked about uh, amazing accomplishments swimming or the amount of time you've covered sports. But I know that you have a very uh, busy and interesting internal life, and you've often identified as an atheist. And um, that's kind of our one of our main topics today. And before we jump in exactly what that means to you, I'd love to hear about some of the early memories you have thinking about this stuff, whether it's thinking about God or going to church, and, and how that story kind of took you to where you are today. You know, I... Um... I, I don't remember really having, you know, any mentor or, you know, reading a particular, you know, exciting book on the subject when I was young, but I was quite young when I was, um, you know, almost defiant about, you know, listen, you have a God. That's that, that sounds wonderful. It sounds rich. I, I hear you. I believe you. I don't. So, you know, I'm just asking you not to put that on me. So I remember uh, my mother's no longer still alive. She would probably, you know, know the date better. But I know it was elementary school because I remember the, the particular place that the flag was in, in our, you know, little courtyard in the elementary school I was in in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I'm not the only one, you know, through the years, you'll hear all kinds of people who refuse to say the Pledge of Allegiance because they don't want to say that, that, that phrase, you know, one nation under God. And I went to the principal and, uh, you know, I, I couldn't pretend to recount really the whole conversation, but I just said, I, I can't do it. I, I can't say that phrase. I don't believe it. It would be a lie for me. And she said, that's fine. You don't have to say it out loud. Just mouth the words. And I said, well, no, um, that's just as much of a lie. She said, just stand there and uh, don't mouth anything. Just let all the other kids say the Pledge of Allegiance. And I said, no, that doesn't work for me either. Now I'm, in, I'm incorporated in the group 
that, that are saying these words. They're looking toward a flag with their hands on their hearts, and they're saying, one nation under God, and I'm with them. She said, then what would you prefer? I said, well, I'd prefer that we take uh, under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance hmm. <laughs> altogether. <laughs> she said, okay, what would be a, an, another choice for you? I said, I just do something else each morning during the Pledge of Allegiance. I go to my locker or I read a book over on the bench. And um, she said, fine. And my mother never never had a problem with me. You know, it's not like I made a, a drama you know, out of it and made a formal protest. But but I do remember clearly being that young. So that would be maybe age eight or nine or 10 in the, you know, those sort of years. Amazing to hear the conviction at such a young age. It seems like it was almost woven into you and how you saw the world. And so then how did you begin to then find a sense of meaning for yourself and ultimately land upon this notion of being an atheist? Well, you know, there, there's a, there's the word, isn't it? You're, you're using the operative word in the whole discussion of religion, meaning. So a lot of people take the word atheist and atheism, and they define it by what we don't believe in. Right. We don't believe in a God. We don't believe in this and this. But to my mind, and this is what started to brew for me, you know, as a young teenager, maybe ages 14, 15, I started reading about the cosmos. And it occurred to me that what was forming in my mind was that I was very comfortable with not knowing the answers to the big questions, mm. not not worrying that uh, I and probably nobody is ever going to know why are we here, what 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 happens when we die, what what was the origin of this you know phantasmagorical universe that we live in, what is the end going to be? I feel for me as an atheist and and i I think there are probably many atheists who would say that's what that's what it is that life does not have to have a meaning for me to find life meaningful it doesn't have to have a a cosmological meaning, a religious, a philosophical meaning for me to find meaning in my own personal life. Right. And, and you've also used an interesting term to describe yourself, which is an atheist in awe. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, you know, it's a, boy, it's a, it's a facile example, but I have a friend who's a Christian, um, you know, studies and prays and uh, sort of lives her life by Christianity. And um, th this has happened in many little ways, but not so, not so long ago, we were taken out on a walk, a socially distanced, safe walk together. And we went by some beautiful flowers and she went and cupped one of the flowers in her hand and bent down and smelled it. And we both looked at it with the, you know, just how could, how could something in nature produce these tiny little magenta lines with these circles of lime green around them and, a, and a petals doing this and this. And she said, she got, she, you know, tears came to her eyes and this has happened before. And she said, how can you, Diana, how can you see this flower? Flower and hold it in your hand, how tender it is, how it utterly beautiful it is, and not believe that God created it. Mm. And I said, Maria, I am as in awe of this flower as you are. It's, it's, it's insulting for you to think I can't feel the majesty of this planet. Matter of fact, if you, the more and more you read about science, 
the more you read about the cosmos and you read Stephen Hawking, A Brief History of Time, and you read about, you know, the, the, the universe and what happens out there and what we think did happen and what's going to happen in the future, you, I think you become more in awe uh, than, you know, than perhaps anybody, you know, who right. feels the awe of religion. So I am, I am swept away. And as a swimmer out in this blue jewel of a planet of ours, I was, and, and more when I was older, you know, I tried that Cuba swim in my 20s and I came back and finally did it in my 60s, but I was more inward. I was more ego oriented back then. But in these days, when I tried it four more times in my 60s, oh, in the middle of the night to look up at those several billion stars that you can see in the Gulf Stream, when dawn would come and to see that that little sliver of a sunrise over 180 degrees of the ocean. I, I, I could come to tears. My heart could beat fast. I, I just, as I say, I, I don't think I could be any more enthralled and mesmerized. And can you say more about how this question of awe has factored into your life as an athlete, as someone who made that famous swim from Cuba to the U.S., and also as a journalist who spent a life covering some of the greatest athletes on this planet? You know, I've often said that if you spend a, a good chunk of your life, Michael Jordan on the basketball court, Martina Navratilova on the tennis court, me out in the ocean, you develop a, um, a reverence for that arena. You know, I'm sure that Michael Jordan could go sit in an empty high school gymnasium. It doesn't have to be, you know, the, you know, the grand centers where he played in front of millions of people on television and showed, you know, how, how his, his, his incredible talents, but, but he has a reverence for that hard court, the hard wood of the basketball court. Martina Navratilova, when she finally retired at Wimbledon, she knelt down, she cried and she plucked a couple of, uh, you know, of pieces of the Wimbledon grass. She put them in her pocket and later safe kept them somewhere else. Well, for me, I stand at the ocean's edge and it does have more meaning for, for me if I'm standing right on the edges of the East River in New York and remembering that August 6, 1975, that glorious sunny day of swimming around with tugboat captains honking their horns. When I stand on the edge of the Florida shore, the Cuban shore, the, um, the Caribbean shore, and look across at those azure waters and what it was, what it was clearly physically, but what it was emotionally and the team and, you know, this, this noble quest that we all believed in, even, even so far as to connect our two countries, Cuban being forbidden, forbidden to us. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, I started when I was younger, but as I said before, much more when I was in my older years, in my 60s, chasing that, that big Cuba, you know, uh, mother load of a dream. Um, you're, you're filled with what is that arena compared to a basketball court and the memories there compared to the Wimbledon grass? What is that arena where I competed and where I gave my all and our team? You know, we're willing to uh, display the courage to fail because the, the chances of failure were so high. You know, what, what, did that, what did that bring to me? What did that define me as, as a human being? Someone willing to pursue something perhaps impossible, probably impossible, and not worry if the destination never became mine, 
but all the life lessons and all the, the deep friendships that were made from pursuing that quest. And it, it tends, there are people on our team who are religious and they say that they saw God out there. Mm-hmm. And when, when, and when we saw the final beach coming into Key West after all those failures and all those hundreds and hundreds of hours of, uh, you know, pretty grueling training swims, there are people who felt God and saw God. And, uh, I felt, you know, a rapture. I felt all the, the history of the effort and the belief and the, the spirit of never, ever give up. You know, if you, if you just get up again, get knocked down, if you get up again, you can get up again and again and again. One day you will make it to your other shore. So that kind of grandiosity, you know, of how to live a life and and how to be you know a, a person you can admire yourself you know it, it almost takes on religious tones because it's so overblown it's so it's so big well finally i wonder did any of those hours in the ocean or any of these memories that we're talking about inform how you feel about death and dying especially as someone who calls themselves an atheist my feeling when i died um you know, there, there isn't to me an afterlife. There's a, you know, that doesn't mean people might not remember you. And as I said before, if we have a collective DNA and a collective memory, I know in my family, we remember my mother. And when we talk about her, there are feelings that have come up. There are memories that surface that we perhaps never had before. I don't consider that religion. I don't think my mother went anywhere. But when the body was over, what's left is her spirit and our memory of her life and her spirit. But she, uh, to my mind, and her spirit didn't, didn't go anywhere. It's ashes to ashes. It's over. This life is for this earth. And when it's over, just like those billions of people who have lived before us, it's over. And when our lives are over, they're going to be over. Well, author, sports commentator, and swimmer Diana Nyad, thank you so much for joining us today on KCRW. It's been entirely my pleasure. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Take good care of yourself. This is Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Well, now that we've heard from two atheists, we'll end today with this question. Why is America becoming less religious? Derek Thompson, staff writer for The Atlantic, says that over the last three decades, secularism has been on the rise. He points to three pivotal points— the association of the Republican Party with the Christian right, the end of the Cold War, and 9-11. Well, Derek Thompson, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, so interested in this question of, of the rise of secularism in the U.S. and how it looks like in the 90s so many people began to turn away from organized religion or at least some affiliation with, with a god or, or theism. And I know you've looked at a couple of factors that may have gone into to why this change why this change started to occur. So, so bring us back there a little bit. What, what was going on that people started to move away from organized religion? So I think there's really two interesting stories that need to be told when it comes to the accelerated growth of this unaffiliated group, sometimes called the nons, N-O-N-E-S, uh, which is essentially a proxy for secularism. The first story, which is kind of interesting, is that there really wasn't any growth 
uh, in religious unaffiliation between, say, the 1950s and the 1990s. Uh, the share of the population that identified as unaffiliated with any religion basically hovered around 6%, really low number, for 40 years. And then suddenly, in the early 1990s, it started to rise and rise and rise and rise, like a hockey stick moment in history. Mm. And these hockey stick moments in history, you know, the Industrial Revolution, for example, when it comes to productivity growth, uh, are always, I think, incredibly interesting because you look at these graphs and you say, what happened at this inflection point? So whenever we're answering this question, what is behind the rise of secularism in America today? The answer to that question has to do two things. It has to explain why that number didn't change in the 1950s through 1980s, and also explain why it did change in about 1991, sending the rise of secularism skyrocketing. Those are the really important stories. Well, let, let's get into both of them. I, I'm interested in, in learning why there was no change for so long, and um, how, how does the research explain that? So I'll offer two theories. The first theory is that America is overall a very religious country. Uh, there is no country as rich as the United States that has been as religious as the United States. A lot of other countries that more or less have our average GDP per capita or average income are a lot less religious, essentially across Europe. Um, but so the U.S. has always had this, I guess, you know, religion advantage uh, over its brethren uh, in, in, uh, in Western Europe um, and Central Europe. Um, that's answer one, which is sort of a, a long historical answer. The second answer, which is more specific to the second half of the 20th century, is that, you know, remember, we were locked in a Cold War against a godless evil empire, as it was called, in the Soviet Union. And so it's possible that as long as Americans felt like the outgroup, like the, the polar identity against which we identified ourselves was godless, that we therefore were embarrassed about godlessness and were less likely to say that we were religiously unaffiliated because it would make us sound potentially like we were communists or Soviet apologists. Mm. But then potentially that might explain, not entirely, but in part, why that relationship broke in the early 1990s as the USSR dissolved. Right. So we move into this new era and we move past uh, that, that era with the USSR and the Cold War coming to an end. So, I mean, w was that the moment that perhaps Americans felt a new sense of, uh, I don't know, spiritual freedom or the ability to move away from those older institutions? Yeah, spiritual freedom is an interesting way to think about it. You know, you could, you could argue that religious unaffiliation or secularism in the U.S. was artificially capped by the Cold War. You mm. know, you had this sort of silent minority, this, 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 uh, this shy cohort of secularists who didn't want to tell pollsters that they didn't believe in God because they were afraid it would make them seem like communists. And so that was suppressed for decades and suddenly it, it burst into light in the early 1990s. That's one thing that I think might be going on. A second thing that might be going on uh, is that in the 1970s and 1980s, religion was politicized in a way that I don't think it necessarily was in previous decades. You really saw the Republican Party make a very clear effort to align itself with a so-called religious right. Organizations like the Christian Coalition, Focus on the Family, Jerry Falwell's mm. Moral Majority, 
these organizations became fundraising and organizing juggernauts for the Republican Party. And so, given negative polarization, if Christianity is seen as a, as a Republican identifier, more young liberals therefore identified as secular. I think that happened as well. Finally, I think it's important to point out um, that America's geopolitical foe in the 21st century, at least in the beginning of the 21st century after 9-11, was not a godless state like the Soviet Union, but rather a God-fearing stateless movement radical Islamic terrorism. And so it's possible that, you know, as, as young people saw that uh, religion could lead to, or the, that the concept of religion held within it, held within that mosaic, the possibility of both far-right extremism and Islamic extremism, that you had more moderate and liberal young people say, I don't want a part of either of those identifiers, and therefore I'm going to identify as unaffiliated. Right. So, I mean, uh, these are some major points when you look at the U.S. and and kind of our role in in the global conversation. Um, But there's also something interesting. I know I identify with this. Um, uh, You talk about no-fault divorces and the decline in marriage. You know, I was a child in the 80s. Parents were divorced. Seems like all of my friends' parents were divorced. And uh, you make this interesting article that uh, as that trend continued to grow, we also saw less people attending church. And I think for some reasons, which was that life can oftentimes be more busy or complicated with two single parents shuffling kids around. Can you say a little bit more about that? Absolutely, yes. We haven't really talked about the sociology Mm. of American religion and it's really important. You know, I spoke in this article that I wrote for The Atlantic uh, to a Notre Dame sociologist and religion professor named Christian Smith. Um, and Smith made this interesting point that, you know, there's been all of these important changes to the structure of the American family in the last, say, half century. Um, divorce rates spiked in the 1970s through 1990s. Uh, that was followed by the state-by-state spread of no-fault divorce laws. As divorce rates stabilized, though, the marriage rate started to plummet in the 1980s. Uh, this was due both to the decline of marriage within the working class and to delayed marriage among college-educated couples. You know, people getting married not at 25, but more likely at something like 35. Mm. And so how does that cash out in terms of religious affiliation? Well, there has historically been this package. You get married, and then you go to church or temple, then you have kids, then you send them to Sunday school. Um, and so stable families, and stable here, I guess, is in somewhat quotation, sort of the, the middle of like 1950s style stable nuclear right. families, were an important part of congregations. And then that meant that, that and in, any instability introduced to this model of the 1950s style nuclear family would destabilize families' relationships with the church. And so that is another theory, that as the nuclear family was destabilized, and you saw the rise of this concept of you know, delayed adulthood, um, people graduating from college, moving to New York or Boston, Minneapolis, and then saying, you know, I'm not going to get married that quickly. I'm not going to affiliate myself with any individual that quickly, so to speak. Um, I'm going to sort of figure out myself throughout my 20s, nearly 30s. Well, that typically doesn't necessarily involve going to church every Sunday. And so as, as you don't develop the habit of going to church or going to temple in your 20s, early 30s, then you, by the time you get married and decide to have kids or talk about kids, maybe temple and church aren't in the discussion for you in terms of how you're going to raise them. Um, so for all these reasons, um, I guess I would summarize this by saying that instability to the 1950s style nuclear family 
also meant instability to the affiliation with church that that nuclear family model had. I wonder how the question of science also fits into this conversation. I know there were a number of great uh, earlier philosophers that that forecasted into the future, saying as the, as the rise of science continues and we try to understand the world through more rational means, that um, that religion will slowly fade away. Do you think that's played any kind of a role in this conversation? I think it probably has. Um, this is called the secularization thesis. It is a prediction that has a lot of subscribers. Uh, Nietzsche, Marx, Sigmund Freud, they all proclaimed in one way or another the death of God and predicted that atheism would follow scientific discovery uh, like a shadow. But it doesn't necessarily explain the history of the West, let's call it, since Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud died. Um, the middle of the 20th century was a time of extraordinary religiosity in America. Um, that's half a century at most, or half a century after a lot of these uh, thinkers were dead. Uh, so, you know, it's not necessarily the case that, that, uh, that science should uh, mechanically lead to secularization. Um, you can have exceptions, uh, but at the same time, I, I, I do think that it, it, a weaker version of this thesis is probably true, that a 21st century that never had a scientific revolution, that never had a renaissance, that never had uh, a, a 19th century uh, industrial revolution that changed our you know, life in so many different ways and, and injected science into areas previously considered in the realm of religion, I, I don't think you would, you would have necessarily the level of secularization that we do have. But the problem is that this is a, a wild hypothetical. And I, and I do think that there are lots of people, uh, lots of scientists, um, or lots of science-minded uh, Americans and, and Europeans and South Americans that are uh, actually quite religious. Well, it's interesting because I think one thing that you point out in this article and that I agree with is that just because we believe in science, it doesn't mean that science can replace religion in the sense of the, the multifaceted nature of religion, the meaning, the community, the, the, the ways to progress through life and stages. And so it's a difficult replacement of a one-to-one -one here, don't you think? And it's a great point. And I think that, you know, there is a, um, it's a somewhat simplified theory of religion that says that religion exists to answer the questions that uh, experience cannot answer itself. Uh, at the same time, though, I think it's a, it's a useful, if glib, guide to religiosity. Mm. Um, when we didn't understand the wind, we came up with a god for it, Zephyr. When we didn't understand the sun, the Egyptians invented a god for the sun and the moon and the stars. Now we understand that the wind isn't really God, it's you know, about you know, the distribution of air given changes in temperature. And we know that the sun isn't a lord, but rather a star, and that the moon isn't another god, but rather uh, a big lifeless rock. At the same time, there are still so many questions that we don't have answers for. You know, what's the meaning of life? Mm. Um, what should I do? Uh, how can I be happy? How can I have hope in a world that sometimes feels hopeless? Um, where can I go to find a sense of meaning in a world that's just stars and rocks right. and 
air moving around differential changes in temperature? Those are questions that science can't really answer. Um, and the, answer that sci the answers that science proffers sometimes are uh, even more depressing than uncertainty. Um, that there's no point to life. That it's all just you know, weak nuclear force and strong nuclear force and atoms bumping into each other and molecules doing a bunch of stuff that has no higher purpose. Right. And that's not satisfying. And so the dissatisfaction that answer will always lead people to religion, whether or not it's organized religion uh, or something or, or spirituality that is more bespoke. How have you made sense of this question in your own life? I mean, have you felt the call towards a traditional institution or, or kind of explored it in, in different ways? So I, uh, I'm Jewish. I was raised Reformed Jewish. Uh, Derek Thompson is not necessarily the most Jewish name right. in the world, but my mother's last name was uh, Khan, and that is my middle name. Um, uh, so I have a German Jewish lineage. And uh, I had a bar mitzvah, um, and I consider myself essentially a, a, a secular Jew. Uh, I don't um, believe strongly in God, but I don't necessarily disbelieve in a God either. And consider myself sort of thoughtfully spiritual, but not particularly religious, which I suppose is a bit of a cliche for my demographic. But um, I don't necessarily find any particular organized religion to be a satisfying answer to the questions that I have about life. Mm. Um, but I do cobble together that which you might call a bespoke religion from a combination of philosophy um, and intuition about the world and superstition and luck. Um, and I think that this is sort of a, a modern approach to religion. Uh, you know, we're, we live in a world of DIY everything. Right. Um, everything is personalized from our news feeds uh, potentially to our, our religious faith. Um, and I, I suppose that I too have personalized a religion um, pieced together from what I read, what I feel, um, and the superstitions that I can't quite shake. Right. Do you think there's a difference between secularism and atheism? I guess I, I would define the terms this way. I would say secularism tends to mean people who don't necessarily subscribe to an organized religion. Atheism is a disbelief in God. Agnosticism is an uncertainty about God. Um, I consider myself agnostic rather than atheist. Uh, mm -hmm. My dad w w called himself an anti-theist. I believe that uh, Christopher Hitchens described himself in the same way. He not only disbelieved in God, but was against the notion of God entirely. Um, I am a secularist who is an uh, agnostic. Um, I'm not atheist, and I'm certainly not anti-theist. Uh, I think that God plays a really important and, and lovely role in a lot of people's lives. And I frankly think that a lot of people who choose not to believe in God, essentially uh, fill a God-shaped place in their life uh, with other beliefs. Um, I think there are people who use SoulCycle as a church, right. um, people who see astrology as a kind of religion, um, and people who even make something like work and their professional lives and their careers a, a kind of uh, faith, a kind of a congregation or spirituality that they hope to provide them with the sort of meaning and purpose and self-actualization that organized religions historically have. Um, so I, in, in a way, I suppose, I don't believe that it's possible to not believe in God. I think that something always has to be at the top uh, of, of that totem pole. Um, and if, we, if you take God off it, uh, something has to fill it. Um, and if you fill it with nothing, then you filled it with a vacuum and your religion ends up being a kind of uh, spiritual nihilism um, that is, in fact, uh, a kind of faith uh, because nihilism can't be proved any more than God can. So um, I, I think, in conclusion, I suppose, that spirituality is, uh, is, is a kind of gene that exists in all of us. Um, and Judaism, Christianity, Soul cycle. Uh, these are all attempts to 
to answer the same sort of phenotypic need to be spiritual. Derek Thompson with The Atlantic, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastion at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastion. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.